You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I think it's a pretty well established fact at this point that I am a bit of a nerd when it comes to books, um, to reading books. And um, that's okay. I'm now comfortable with that. I can own that. And uh, last night, actually, I finished reading The Lord of the Rings. Um, And uh, I think it's the seventh or eighth time that I've read The Lord of the Rings. So uh, if you want to beat me up after the service, I understand why. I... uh, (laughs) I was close enough to the end of the... You know, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, it's like 1,500 pages long. And I was, I was close enough to the end of the book to think that I could finish it before I went to sleep last night. I was close enough that I could finish it, but not close enough that I could be here this morning and be coherent. So if, if you get lost along the way, just, just blame me. And um, anyway, I, I just could, I couldn't help but finish the book because I just love that book so much. And the reason I love that book and books like it is because of the scale, right? It is an epic tale. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien put together this world in such rich detail that you can submerse yourself in it and, it's, and it, it holds up, right? It's, it's believable. It's so big that you can walk around in it and believe it. And they're the kind of stories I like. They're the kind of uh, uh, movies that I like. I like big movies. On, on s- the scope is epic, right? The, the g- movies like they used to be. Big, epic movies like Ben-Hur, right? These huge movies, huge books. And that's why I love them because there's something compelling, something, um, something kind of overwhelming about epic stories, and I think probably that's why I was bored by the Bible, particularly in my late teens. I found myself getting very bored by the Christian story. My late teens is when I started reading those books, those big books, epic stories, and it was about the same time that I got really bored of Christianity, because here's my, here's my understanding of Christianity, right, as a late teen. My understanding of Christianity was that it was a very simple, very narrow story. It started with sin and it ended with salvation. The message was everyone is screwed and then Jesus comes and saves us. And the result is that if you trust him, you get whisked away to some kind of far off land where everything is uh, everything's good and happy. Um, That was my understanding of the Bible, and that's why I was so bored by it, because there's nothing epic about that story. Really, it's only in the last third of my life, all right? So like the last 12, 13 years that I've come to understand that actually the Bible story is much bigger than sin, salvation, and then far off heaven. It's much bigger than that. Actually, the story of the Bible is the original epic story, which makes sense. It wouldn't be the best-selling book of all time if it was weak, if it was thin, if it was basic. Actually, the story of the Bible is huge. It's epic. It's cosmic. So I've got a little image here. This is a, the kind of image we use when we talk about the story of the Bible here. And, and in fact, when you actually look at the Bible, you discover it doesn't begin with sin. It begins with creation, right? Everyone should know that first 
page of the Bible is creation. And, he, and, and then it moves through to fall, so we do get to sin. But it moves beyond that, not just to redemption, but to final restoration or recreation. So in creation, you find the story of God out of his own overflowing brilliance, his genius, his artistic prowess, right? You find God in the beginning, uncreated, with nothing in existence outside of himself, taking his brush and dipping it in the paint for the first time. And what he paints is this universe which is just overflowing with his perfection, his artistic prowess. And he he paints into existence this creation which is just humming with with a kind of divine and perfect rhythm. Everything is as it should be. Everything in all of its truth and beauty is just as it should be. That's creation. Then very quickly, we do fall. We have humanity who God has created as the kind of pinnacle of his perfect creation. He's created man and woman, and unlike the rest of his creation, this man and this woman are made in his image. That is, he gives to this man and this woman something of himself. He creates them to be like an image reflective of the reality, which is him. And in that, that one profound statement that humanity is made in his image, you have all of the foundation for what we know today as Western civilization. You have the very notion of universal human rights seated in that reality. If you don't believe that people are made in the image of God, you have no foundation, philosophical or otherwise, for universal human rights. You don't. You've got nothing. You can search. There's nothing there. And so within that, that profound statement at the very beginning of the Bible, you have humanity set apart, made in the image of God, imbued with infinite and unconditional value. And yet, moving from the first part of the story into the second, you have these creatures with their God-given intellect and will turning away from him, wanting what we all want at the root of our being, wanting to be self-determining creatures. That is, wanting to be our own gods. That's essentially what Adam and Eve are doing there. They're turning away from God so that they can have self-dominion, self-rule. And so creation itself falls at that moment when they turn away from God. They get what they want. They get themselves. And they themselves, now along with creation itself, is fractured, it's broken. It's not destroyed. It's not decimated, but it is broken. And we, as as people living in 2020, testify to that truth, right? There is great beauty in the world as an echo of God's original, beautiful creation. And yet there is, at the same time, great and deep brokenness in the world around us bushfires raging everywhere and in our own hearts. So we have the echoes of that initial fall rippling out even today, even as we 
gather together as his people in this place. Creation and fall, and then from the fall onwards, God is committed rather than just saying, well, you, you get what you want, you're kicked out of home, right? You broke the rules. Rather than that, he pursues and pursues and pursues relationship with his creatures with the view to them ultimately being reinstated into that original perfect relationship with him. So from the very moment he judges them for falling away, he promises them that he will send someone who will overcome the curse of sin, who will overcome the fall, who will remake all things. It's called the, the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel promised right there in the garden. He was going to send someone born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of chaos and sin and brokenness. And then from that point forward, he works out that plan. First of all, pulling together a people for himself, the people of Israel, and then through them blessing people of all nations, including us, culminating through various promises over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to send this man into the world who will bring the world back together. And that's his son. He sends his one and only son. He sends the Messiah, Jesus, into the world to win redemption for his people. Redemption just means it's the act of buying slaves out of slavery. You might be actively involved in that work today, and I, I would encourage you to be part of that work. The slave trade is still at large, maybe larger than it has ever been, particularly in terms of sex slavery. And for you to take some of the money that God has given you and put it into the recovery, it, literally the redemption of people mainly kids who are enslaved to this day, is to do the work of God in the world, what he's always been doing, working towards redemption. He ultimately does this in sending the, the Messiah King. He sends Jesus, the Christ, into the world to live the life that we could never live. Ever since that day in the garden, the fall, we could never live a perfect life. Not a single one of us. And yet this Messiah lives the life we could never live, the Life without sin. And then he dies the death that we should have died. A death for sin. And in doing that, he satisfies all the requirements necessary to purchase, to buy, that is to redeem his people. To reconnect them in relationship with God. Creation, full redemption, but the story doesn't finish there. The story doesn't finish with Jesus dying on the cross. He then rises to new life. With resurrection body, he enters into paradise, and that is the model for us. That's the prototype for everyone who loves Jesus. Everyone who's been redeemed, look to him as the prototype for what the very thing that's going to happen to you. When he comes again, you yourself will be remade resurrected, given a new body that can never fall, can never sin. That body will exist in perfect unity with God, not in some kind of ethereal, mysterious, spiritual place somewhere else, but in a living, breathing, harmonious, rhythmic creation.
that new heaven and new earth is the destination for everyone who trusts in him. That is final restoration. This is the story of the Bible, epic in its scope, stretching from eternity past into eternity future, put together, governed, superintended, sovereignly ruled by a God who loves us with a deep and loyal love. We'll get to this in a minute. It's, a, to use a Hebrew word, a chesed love. It's a love that remembers its promises. It's a love that is committed to us even when we turn away from him. It's a never-ending love. And that story of love is the storyline of the entire Bible, and it's epic in its scope. This is the the kind of view we need to have of not just the the storyline of the Bible, but of our place in it. It's bigger than just being whisked off in some kind of rapture to some kind of ethereal existence. It's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's earthier than that. It's flesh and blood and breath. To the point where uh, last week, when I visited with the Veal family and Joshua and Benjamin were there, they kind of had a question. They've always got good questions for me. And the question they had was, you know, in heaven, will, we, uh, will there be dinosaurs there? And that is not a dumb question. It's only dumb if your view of heaven is the Philadelphia cheese commercial version, isn't it? If you have the Bible view, that actually becomes a really good question. And so I said to them, you know, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but I'm going to say that, yeah. Yeah, I'm expecting there to be dinosaurs there. Because everything good that God made is going to be remade. Everything good itself is going to be redeemed and restored. So that in a sense, you take creation and then subtract all all that is sad, all that is dark, all that is broken, and you have there restoration, recreation. Just as I was saying last night, I read the, the last bit of the, the return of the king. Tolkien named the last book of his epic trilogy the, the uh, return of the king because he modelled it on the story of the gospel. He modelled it on creation, fall, redemption and restoration and the return of King Aragorn to his rightful place coincides with the crushing of Uh, everything that's dark, everything that's broken, sin in that world. And there's this great line, which in in my previous seven or eight readings I had never seen and picked up on, but there's this line where, where having overthrown the dark lord, there's this little interaction between Sam, a hobbit, and Gandalf, the wizard, and I've written it out here for you. Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. That is Tolkien's own view of recreation, the overthrow of everything dark, the undoing 
of everything sad. Is, is everything sad going to come untrue? That's a great description of restored creation. The story of the Bible is epic in scope, bigger than most of us have come to terms with. And this psalm that we're going to look at is epic in its scope as well. You have, beginning at the start, you have Israel praising God for his faithful love. You have Israel looking forward to the day where his king, his Messiah, is going to come and make all things right. And that's predictable. You find that throughout the Psalms. What's different about this Psalm is that it goes beyond the people of Israel. It stretches out to people of all nations, something a foreign concept to the people of Israel who saw themselves as God's people but didn't really have a a fully realized understanding of God blessing the nations. And then actually it doesn't just stop with people like you and me, people of all nations, but but in in the last stanza there, the psalm invites creation itself to praise God for his righteousness. Hills and mountains and creeks and seas, praising God together. Again, epic in scope and not limited to people, but involving all creation, praising God for his goodness. Do you guys grow up in churches like I did where you have... Uh, in a classic Anglican church, you have a long, narrow church, and there's an aisle that separates everyone. And so it, it gave itself to this way of singing songs. I think it was called singing in a round, right, where you'd have all right, people on this side. You sing this part of the verse, and then these people sing th- this part of the verse, and then you, everyone joins together. Or you have men and women, and then you, right? That's what's going on in a way here. You start out with God's people being invited, sing, 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 sing praises to God for all of the obvious reasons. He's been faithful to you guys. You are his people. But then it says, all right, now you guys, you just be quiet for a second. We're going to invite the people of the nations, pagan people, Greek people, people of every color and tongue. We invite them in because they're part of the scope of this work of redemption and restoration as well. And then, then you guys just be quiet for a second. We're going to invite all of creation, Right? the stuff of creation to join in in this hymn of praise because creation itself, as Paul says in Romans 8, is groaning, waiting for its own resurrection, its own restoration. And then they're all pulled together at the end to sing this hymn of praise with one voice, one creation, loved by God, redeemed by God, ultimately restored by God. Let's jump in. I'm just going to take, there's three stanzas here. We're going to work one by one through each one. So real simple. Start off with verse one to three. Psalm 98, a psalm. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. A couple of things I want to highlight here. First of all, God is a God who keeps all his promises. 
This is something we need to hear because every single one of us has been burned continually by broken promises. Our parents, every single one of us, every single parent in this room themselves has broken promises to their children. We are, as it were, raised to expect promises to be broken. And some of us, because we've been burned super bad, find it hard even now to accept and believe promises that come from God himself for good reason. So we, this is Israel rehearsing something that they want to believe. It's, it's one of those, I believe, help my unbelief kind of things, right? God Actually, in reality, despite our experience of earthly fathers, God the Father keeps all his promises. Verse 3, he has remembered his love and faithfulness. The, the word in there, and you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar, I'm certainly not, but the word, there's a word in there in the original Hebrew which is super important if you want to understand that big picture storyline of the Bible, it's the word hesed, or if you want to get the Hebrew thing right, you've got to get it right from the back of the throat, so you've got, you got to go hesed, all right? Do it for me. That's it. Chesed. And it's, it's, a, it's a word in the Bible that kind of stands out in, in its importance, particularly for the old covenant people of Israel. Chesed love is loyal love. It's the kind of love that if you're married, you're trying to give to your spouse and failing every day. That love is perfected in God himself. It is a love that keeps its vows. Better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. God keeps his promises even when we, his bride, turn away from him or as the Old Testament explains in graphic detail, go and sleep with other men. Right? Even when we're unfaithful, even when we're adulterous, God continues to pursue us with chesed, love, loyal love. He is remembered. That's, okay, get out of your mind like, oh, I've forgotten my keys. Oh, that's right, I put them on the bench. It's not, he doesn't remember in that way. It's just a continual calling to mind what he has already said. I love you. I'm committed to you, and this love is covenantal love. It's something that I will not ever break. That's Hesed love. There's this point in the second letter to the Corinthians where Paul just gets all so excited about the fact that this Hesed love is now embodied in Jesus. This is what he says. Every one of God's promises, right? Right back to Genesis chapter one, every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. How do we know that God keeps his promises? We look to Jesus and see that all of God's promises have been kept in him. All of them have their yes in him. First thing. Second thing I want you to see is that he, he, he doesn't just keep all his promises. He saves from all nations. So that's particularly verse two and three. And this, 
as we said at the beginning, is a continuation of the thread that began right after the fall, when God makes promises to covenant with his people, to bless his people, to save, redeem, and ultimately restore his people. This, this thread runs throughout the storyline of the Bible, and it isn't just the people of Israel that it applies to. It's people of all nations. So if you go right back to when he, uh, to, to the first uh, Proto-Euangelion, right? That's in Genesis 3. Uh, then you skip forward to Genesis 22 where he first calls Abram as the kind of father of this nation of Israel in, in, in Genesis 22. Do I have that there? He calls him out and he says, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, right? And then 18, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. So this thing isn't just going to sit with you guys as a, as a nation to yourself, but it's going to spread across all of the earth. Isaiah, in, verse 50, uh, in chapter 52 He echoes the psalmist here. He says, The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, all the ends of the earth. Caroline Springs, being quite literally the end of the earth, will see the salvation of our God. Amen? Like, that is huge. Can you imagine a people living in the ancient Near East in the desert, hearing that for the first time and going, I don't know about that. All the ends of the earth taken up by Jesus in his great commission to his disciples before he ascends to the Father, before he experiences full restoration in the kingdom of God. What he says to his disciples is that between this, my first coming and my second coming, here's what you need to do. Matthew 28, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I am with you always to the ends of the age. So, right, the message goes to the ends of the earth and Jesus is with us to the end of the age. That's the full-orbed, full-scoped storyline of the Bible played out in that very passage. So God's plan of redemption has always been to all nations. And so that's why the next stanza we're going to look at invites people of all nations, people like you and me, people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, people even living on the edges of the earth, to join in the song of his praise, right? Verse four to six. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant, shout for joy and sing. This is a good corrective to good old uh, Church of England people, all right? Be jubilant, shout for joy. When's the last time you did it? Shout for joy, sing with the lyre. And melodious song with trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn. Shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord, our King. 
all the peoples of the earth, you and me, people from every nation, are invited in to sing this hymn of praise. Now this is not something that we should take for granted. This is something beautifully represented in this room here this morning. Jimmy's back with us this morning, praise the Lord. Jimmy and I, uh, we grew up in the whitest region of Australia, right? Back when we were growing up, statistically established, the whitest area, the lowest possible percentage of people who weren't white were living in that area at the time. And that's fine. I mean, it just is what it was. It's, it's still kind of like that, but it's, there's a little more color. Um, but so we grew up in a church where, there, I mean, apart from my younger sister who was adopted from South Korea, who was the anomaly in the entire region, right, like an alien, um, we had heard of Asian people, but this was actually one like living among us. Um, apart from that in our church, it was just, it was, it was white, and again, it's fine. It just re- reflects the local demographic. But that's how we grew up worshipping. Now, that's fine, but it's out of sync with God's plan for his restored people. God's redeemed and then restored people is a patchwork of people from every nation and tribe and tongue. That's what we've got here this morning, right? Right? Praise God for that. What he wrote here, it happened. It's here. We've got a little taste of it here this morning, a taste of it that's still wrestling with the brokenness received by the fall and because of our participation in sin. We have a beautiful picture of it here still marred by a kind of endemic racism and distrust of people who don't look like us or don't eat like us or don't smell like us, right? We're still working it out as we do this thing together, trusting that the gospel has overcome all of those arbitrary boundaries. But the real picture, the full picture, the restored picture is given to us in Revelation chapter seven, all right? Here's the picture. John looking into the new creation, he says, I looked And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what we're working towards. That's what we're trying to taste now. That's what we're trying to capture in this room. That which will be fulfilled, restored. Something we can participate in in its fullness in restored creation. In the new heavens in the new earth.
and then just when you think it can't get any bigger than that, right? That's, that's people of all nations, people of all languages, busting open the idea that this is just an Israel thing, inviting all people in to the ends of the earth. Just when you think it can't get any more epic than that, it opens up to a third level. And creation itself is invited into the song. It says, verse 7 to 9, let the sea and all that fills it, the world, those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord for his coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. You read those first couple of verses and it sounds like a Sunday school lesson gone wrong, right? It sounds like just this, this weird childish imagination, the sea, fish, eels, whales, octopus, right? Rivers clapping their hounds, mountains shouting. That's not a childish view of, of praise in the new creation. That's reality, the reason we think it's childish is because our, our imaginations have shrunk since we were little kids. So we need to open ourselves up to this full-orbed, full-creation view of praise, of worship. Hosanna in the highest. The whole earth praises God for his righteousness. They're actually praising him for judgment day, not something to be fearful of but something to be looked forward to. Why? Because everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything broken is going to be restored. Every sin committed. Will be finally dealt with. That's what we're working towards. That's what we're hoping for. That's what all of creation is groaning in anticipation of. We've got this nice little summary out of the ESV study Bible. It says this, this section, bringing in all of creation, it extends the invitation from human inhabitants of the world, the world and those who dwell in it, to include even the sea and all that fills it, the rivers and the hills, the entire creation, human and otherwise, can rejoice at the prospect of God's just rule. This is what everything that's ever been created, deep down inside, everything that's ever been created is yearning for this. We might not understand that that's what we're yearning for, we might misdiagnose it as a yearning for relational fulfillment, right? Financial fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, material fulfillment. We chase all kinds of things trying to fulfill this longing, this very ancient longing. But the reality is that that longing can only be satisfied by this reality a restored creation. And so now, like now, in the here and now, now that we're aware of the scope of what God has always been doing and is doing and will do, 
This is the, the now and not yet, right? God has redeemed us but hasn't yet restored us in the, in the now and, and not yet. We need to understand that those two ages aren't disconnected. They're running into each other all of the time. And so as human beings, we were made to submit to God's rule and then to govern all creation in in wisdom and love. And so we understand that when that happens, when we have things in the right order with, with God the King ruling over us and then through us governing creation in wisdom and in chesed love, right? When, when, when all of creation together acknowledges God's kingship, then we can experience a kind of flourishing which is a foretaste of final restoration, There is a very famous poem written by a guy named Isaac Watts. It's a famous poem that was written to try and encapsulate all that we've been talking about. It was a poem written based on Psalm 98, taking into account the full-orbed story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And it's a poem you know. You may not have ever read it, but you've sung it hundreds of times. And I want to read it to you now as we finish, and then I'll I'll pray for us. Isaac Watts writes, quote, Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart Prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his chesed love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this song. We thank you for the scope of this song. It's a song that contains all of creation, the creation that you made good and right and rhythmic, perfect in every way, the the creation that you earnestly desire to restore Lord, we ourselves with creation groan. We look forward to that day when you will come and restore all things. In the meantime, we praise you for your redemption. We've tasted it. We've experienced it. We delight in it. We praise you for it. But we want more. We want to move from redemption to full restoration. So we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come, 
and judge the world with righteousness. Make every sad thing come untrue. Please come. We yearn for the day where we ourselves, along with all of creation, will praise you for your goodness, your righteousness, and your hesed love. To the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.